those of you who have to stay, you'll be able to find today's text in your order of worship, or if you want to use a Bible or your phone or anything else you'd like to use, from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 through 21, I'm going to read. So I say to you, hear the word of God. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And Mo said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we come to the end of the Ten Commandments, it's some, in some sense for myself, I feel like it's almost the beginning. Um, the insights that we have gathered into your law, the insights that your law has given us into the gospel. I pray that you would work them deeply into our hearts. I pray for those who, he, who are here today uh, who, whose eyes are blind to the gospel, that you would open them. I pray for the deaf ears who would be able to hear. I pray for those of us who, who maybe are sleepy in our faith, that you would wake us up. I pray that you would bring conviction of sin as well as conviction of grace. And Father, I pray that you'd be in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. And amen. Well, this is number 10. It's actually the 12th sermon. Remember, I did two introductory sermons. And although this is the 10th commandment, there's a sense in which next week will be the conclusion. You see, next week is supposed to be Advent, and I could either preach on the stump of Jesse, nothing like preaching on a stump, or... Um, sort of summarize everything about the law and the gospel. So that's what I'll do next week, and we will start celebrating Advent next week. Before we actually jump into this last commandment, I thought I would sort of review and sort of tie some things back together, because just in the sense that, remember I told you that the first command is sort of the Lord of all commands? Well, there's a sense in which the, the 10th command is, if, if whatever the an analog to the Lord. It's sort of the queen of the commands. It's, it's right up there with the first one. And so if you remember that God actually had purpose for giving the Ten Commandments. He didn't just sort of say, you know, I want these people to be good and moral, so I'll throw them out there. That he had delivered them from the land of Egypt, from slavery and bondage. And the first thing that he said after he had delivered them and told them that they would be a light to the nations were the Ten Commandments. And in fact, this is the only time that God speaks to all of Israel at one time. So, you, you know, it's sort of like, all right, I got something important to say. He brings everyone together. They hear, of course, they're ultimately afraid. So if you remember, the purpose of the Ten Commandments was basically to protect and equip Israel as they bore the witness to God's character in front of the nations. In other words, they weren't just to be moral. They were, they were actually given to them to show them how to live out God's character in front of the nations. Another way to look at it is like this. Um, you know, at the end of the first service, someone came to me and said, you know, I was nervous when you started the Ten Commandments series, and now that you're, you've finished it, I never felt more free. That was the goal. But one way to look at the purpose of the Ten Commandments is that, remember, they start with grace. He says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you. It's done. Now, have no other gods but me. In other words, I've made you, I've made you free. Now, here's how to make the most of your freedom the Ten Commandments. 
And also, he didn't just give us Ten Commandments. Remember, we looked at several principles. I'm not going to go through them all. The, the biggest ones we looked at were basically cups and coins. If you remember that, you're good to go. Remember, Jesus said that the, when he's talking to the Pharisees about their hearts, he says basically the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is full of greed and wickedness. Remember, when you read the Ten Commandments, you need to think of how do they apply not only externally, but how do they apply internally? Remember when we looked at adultery, Jesus said, you've heard it said not to commit adultery, but I say if you've even looked on a woman, you're guilty. In other words, that's an example of the inside and the outside matching. And not only that, but remember the, the, the principle of cups that I gave you, or the principle of coins rather? That each command has a positive and a negative aspect. That whatever the command, if the command forbids something, it demands the exact opposite thing. So in other words, if the command says do not steal, What's the opposite of stealing? Well, the, the positive outworking is be generous or give. If the command is don't commit adultery, then the positive outworking of that is to be faithful, correct? And so you look at, at those things. Now, when you get to the, to the end of the Ten Commandments, remember I also told you that the Ten Commandments primarily were, made, were given to be lived out, not to be called out. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is Christians and, you know, back Jews in the day, it's, it's easy to sort of point fingers and say, you guys are breaking all the Ten Commandments. That's not why God gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them to, the Ten Commandments to live the commandments out in front of the nations, not to call the other nations out, at least primarily. You know, there come times when perhaps, you know, the, the Christians need to say something or God sends prophets along to call the nations out. But primarily the reason he gave the Ten Commandments was so that we would live them out in front of the rest of the world. And so with all of that said, you get to the Tenth Commandment. And the Tenth Commandment is interesting because the Tenth Commandment is the only one that has no outward manifestation. Remember I told you it's different than any other law in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, you'd have, you know, their codes of laws, they all look very similar, frankly, until you get to, to Israel's law, where God puts this last commandment in there, where he says, you shall not covet. And it's interesting, because Martin Luther said in his larger catechism, that, you know, and he was a funny guy, right, that basically the reason that God gave the, the 10th commandment was basically to, to, to make the self-righteous uncomfortable, in other words, if you go through the first, the first commandments, if you look through commandments one through four, our duty toward God, and then you look at the second uh, table of the law, which is our duty toward our neighbor, do not murder, do not steal, do not, um, do, do not uh, commit adultery, all these kind of things. You could look at those if you just read them on the surface and say, I'm a pretty good person, right? I've never murdered. Now, if you listen to the sermon, you realize that's not true. You'd say, I never commit adultery. If you listen to that sermon, you realize that's not true. But you could, you could see how the, ex, the outward conformity, you could, you could trick yourself into thinking you're not guilty of those things until you get to the 10th commandment. Because the 10th commandment, it basically asks this question. Ask this question of yourself. Assuming you're good on all the rest of the other nine, have you ever wanted something that belonged to someone else? Ever. Even if you're good to go on the first nine commandments, number 10 gets us every time. Because there's not a human alive that hasn't looked over and said, I wish I had that instead of this, or I wish I had that person's thing instead of this. So that's what the, the last command, it sort of is like almost a net <laughs> to catch all the people who, who got away on the first nine. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Basically, we're going to look at coveting. What does it mean to covet? Uh, the second thing we're looking at is contentment. Remember the principle of the coin said if, if it, the command forbids one thing, then it demands the opposite. 
And well, if coveting is looking and saying, I, I want and I need and I desire that thing, what the opposite of coveting is contentment. Because I feel satisfied that I have everything that I need. And then finally, we're going to look at this just idea, how do you cultivate contentment? Like you hear about contentment in the Bible, and, and the question is, is there a way to cultivate it? Because I don't feel like I should just send you out from here and say, be content. Because most of us won't do that. I wouldn't do that. And so is there a way we can cultivate contentment? It's, it's actually pretty practical, I think. So let's jump right in. Let's look first at the whole idea of coveting. What does it mean to covet something? Let me read to you the, again the text. Verse 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you should, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, when you're, when you're interpreting the Bible, you look for repetition. Did you see what word was repeated three times in one command? It was the word neighbor. In other words, if you want to understand what it means to covet, you have to understand coveting or in the context of your relationship to your neighbor. And so what do I mean by that? So is it wrong to desire things? Absolutely not. In fact, if we didn't desire things, the world would just be stuck in inertia. Right? You would just sit down. Do you desire food? Nope. Do you desire sex? Nope. Do you desire... No, you would just sit there. There would be no use for living. And the Bible affirms over and over and over again the goodness of creation and the, the fact that we ought to delight in creation. So what's the difference between desiring and coveting well, the answer has to do with your neighbor. In other words, it's not wrong for you to say, I desire a new motorcycle, right? My wife isn't in here, but she did hear it last time. I desire a new motorcycle. That's not wrong. And you say, okay, you desire it. How can you get it? Well, you legitimately, maybe you work more, you save more. And eventually, if God wants you out of the motorcycle, you'll be able to pay for it and you get it. You're good. Now, what coveting says is I desire Joe's motorcycle, that I, I'm dissatisfied with my lot in life, and if I only had Joe's motorcycle or Bob's motorcycle, I would be happy. In other words, you look at other people's things and think other people's things are the key to your happiness. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked over and said, you know, if I had a different spouse, I would probably be happier. Or if I had that person instead of this person, I would probably be happier. If you've ever said that or thought that, you are guilty of coveting, which it always, I don't know if they say, I've never really heard it out here. It's always interesting if you're from the South, people often say, I covet your prayers. And I always think like, so you want me to take prayers I was going to give to you and give them to, or give to someone else and give them to you, right? It's sort of almost like stealing. So I didn't pray for them. They coveted it. Didn't want to be implicated in that. Coveting, as I said before, is all internal as well. It's all about your desires, but it's about your desires gone awry. There's no way to look at someone externally and, and ask yourself, is that person a coveter or no? Is that person guilty of coveting? Well, how can you know? Because you can't see into their hearts. Only we can see into our own hearts. In fact, only we can see into our own hearts most of the time if God enables us to see into our own hearts. So the, the whole idea of coveting, it's completely and utterly internal, and it makes us guilty of, of disobeying the law. And on top of all that, coveting more than all the rest of them, I think, is a theological problem. What do I mean by that? Coveting is a theological problem in, in as much as this. If you, do you remember the first commandment? You shall have no other gods but me. And, and the outworking of that is, are you going to trust me and only me? 
Are you going to believe in me and only me? Or do you believe I'm going to provide everything that you need? When we covet, we are functionally saying, God, I don't believe that you have given me everything that I need. I don't believe that you've given me everything that I want, need, or desire. Or I don't believe you've given that which is best for me. Because what I think is best for me is to have that. And so it becomes a theological issue, and it leads into the issue of contentment. Because at the end of the day, coveting has everything to do with whether or not we believe and or understand the providence of God. Now, what do I mean by providence? It's a big theological word. But when we talk about the providence of God, a great definition is in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 27 asks this question. It says, what do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. Do you believe that? That everything that comes to you, good and bad, comes to you not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And to take it a step further, the question isn't whether everything came to me by God's fatherly hand. The question is, why did it come to me? Do you believe the promise that God is, is out to do you good rather than out to do you harm? In other words, everything that comes to me, whether it's hard or whether it's good, whether it's, it's a blessing or whether it feels like curse, is given to me. Because God knows what's best for me, and he is working something in me that he can only do through this situation. And it brings the command full circle, because like I said before, it it begs us to look at the first command. Do you really believe that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that I have delivered you by grace, and that I will finish the job? And because of that, you'll have no other gods than me, or you're going to trust me for everything. Trust me for your spouse, trust me for your kids, trust me for everything that you can imagine. Will you do that? And when we don't do that, we typically, it's because we're coveting. We're looking at other things and say, if I only had that thing. And you know what? At the end of the day, the problem is, you know, I think I told you last week that my favorite line from from Tim Keller is when he would always tell people, he'd say, you know, five years from now, you're going to look out and say, man, I was really an idiot back then. And if five years from now you're going to look back and say, I was an idiot back then, what that means is you're an idiot now. Now, why is that important? It's because we are not God, and we tend to think we have a view of all the things that we need, want, and desire. But at the end of the day, are we going to trust God for what's best for us? You know, I've said it before to you as a congregation. The first 10 years of my marriage, I honestly wondered sometimes, did God give me this woman to punish me? I've been married for almost 25 years now. And then something happened, and I sort of figured out the issue isn't the, the woman. The issue is actually me. And the fact that God didn't give me my wife to punish me, but he gave me my wife to, in order to bless me. There were all these things in my life that there was only one person in the world that could actually, that God wanted to use in order to work them. And it, her name happened to be Judy Allen. Think about that. Out of six billion people in the world, who, if you're married, whoever you're married to is the one person in the world that God wants to work, use to work something in you that he could not work through any of the rest of the six billion people. Do you believe that? Most of us, we don't. You, we tend to say, man, if I only had that spouse. And you tend to say that when you're younger because when you grow up, you tend to say, when, when you grow up, when you become almost 50, you, you tend to say more and more, I'm glad I, I don't have that spouse. Correct? 
because you learn a little bit and you look at your neighbor's things and you say, man, if I only had those things, I would be happy. Really? You know, it, the, the, the idea of contentment is not just a, a poor thing. It's a, it's a rich and a poor thing. Remember uh, Rockefeller's line? Some reporter asked him, you know, you, you know, you're like basically the richest man in the world. How much money do you need? And you remember what he said? Just a little bit more. I always just need just a little bit more. I need, because there's, even if you're wealthy, you can look out and see that, man, there's something that that person has that I don't. If, if you ever doubt that covetousness is a real sin, serve one Sunday in the nursery. If you want a child to become interested in a toy, just let another child play with it. I try and work in the nursery at least once or twice a year, and I've never ceased to be amazed at when one kid picks up a toy, suddenly the other kids, that's what they want to play with. That's because they're little coveters. And they're not content. And they learned well from us, frankly. You see, the problem is, the, the, the issue isn't that we have desires. The issue is that we desire typically the wrong things. Whether you're a Christian or not. Whether you're a Christian or not, t- oftentimes we, we find ourselves unsatisfied and full of desire, and we don't know why we're never satisfied. And the answer is, I think, because we're desiring the wrong things ultimately. You know, I read a book. Someone recommended it to me at a church planner thing in, in Detroit a couple months ago. And it's a great book. And the title of the book, if you want to read it, is called With. That's it, With, W-I-T-H, by a, a guy named Sky Jathani. I don't know how to spell his name. And basically, he makes the case, as he, he, talks, he talks you through, as you read the book, our relationship with God. And the way most of us approach our relationship with God. And when you realize the way that most of us approach our relationship with God, it helps you to see why we're so dissatisfied with our lives at some level. He basically lays out four different ways that we tend to, to relate to God. And one of the first one, basically he's over, under, from, and for. That when you live your life over God, what that means is basically you look at the Bible, you're a Christian maybe, and you look at the Bible and it's just an instruction manual. Right? You've ever seen the, the people who take Bible, you know, basic life instructions before leaving earth or something. Right? You don't even need God. Because the Bible is just an instruction book for how you should live your life. The problem is, is that ends up being not terribly satisfying because you begin to live your life that way and you realize it doesn't always work, which leads to the next way that people tend to relate to God, and that's living life under God. Now, what, what is life under God? Life under God is when you sort of live your life as a good Christian person, and at the end of the day, it doesn't go how you thought it would go. In other words, you spend your whole life maybe raising your kids and you homeschool and you keep them and guard them from all things and you quote Proverbs over and over again, you know, that raise up a child in the way he shall go and when he is old, he departed from it. What's happened there? Proverbs says when he's old, he will not depart from it. But, you know, the fact is that some kids, no matter how they're raised at the end of the day, they do depart from it. And we look and we say, God, I did all these things for you, and yet you didn't do these things for me. If we live like that, we don't get it. Because at that, when you live like that, you're basically trying to make God your slave, trying to make God your servant. God, I'll do all these things in order to get you to do these things. That's a dissatisfying way to live your life. The other way is to live life from God, which is basically sort of name it, claim it, prosperity. You know, God wants me to be prosperous and blessed and rich, and I name it and I claim it, and I'm still poor. God must not care about me that much. And then the final one, by the way, is one I tend to be guilty of. 
right? It, but it also tends to be the one that gets you the most praise when you live life for God, right? People who live life for God, they want to be radical, right? They want to do great things for God, and it's all about the mission. But you can love the mission more than you can actually love God. And when the mission doesn't go like it's supposed to go, you end up dissatisfied. You know, the only thing that the Bible says can satisfy our hearts is a relationship with God. Living with God. When in the Garden of Eden, God went and he dwelled with Adam and Eve. If you look all the way to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, what is so fantastic about the book of Revelation? Is it new heavens and new earth? That's pretty big. But it's that the Lamb dwells with them. And the city doesn't even need any light because the Lamb and the Lord are with them. And in other words, do we desire God himself? Do we desire a relationship with God. At the end of the day, the reason that if you're a Christian or not, that you, you tend to be dissatisfied, even if you're very content, is because at the end of the day, the, the, what our hearts desire is God himself. Do you remember Psalm 37? We prayed it today. It said, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so that leads us, how do we do that? How do you delight yourself in the Lord? How do I, how do I make God my only desire when in fact I want a new motorcycle? How do I make God my, is God really the, the thing that my heart longs for? Well, I think it is. I'm going to give you some practical tips here, if you will. There's two, I'm going to look at things from a spiritual aspect and things from a practical aspect. The thing that I think should drive us to, to desire God most of all, and the thing that should desire, drive our desire to be with God most of all, is by understanding and seeing his desire for us. Do you understand how much God desires you? Honestly. Think about it. If you if you ever like think back, if you're married, and let's just talk about the guys from the guys side right now. You know, if you're married and you're a guy, and you think back to you know maybe you've been married 20 years or 30 years, and you look back and think about all the crazy things you were willing to do in order to win your love's affection. In fact, I look back and I think of all the things that I did, and I think right if I was to do them now, I would be crazy. And yet you look back and think, I was, almost, I was willing to do anything in order to win the affection of this girl I desired. And now when you look at the gospel of Jesus, ask yourself, what is God willing to do? If he really desires you, what is he willing to do in order to win you? And the answer is pretty simple. He's willing to go all the way to the cross in the person of his son. If you ever wonder if God desires you, look to the cross. If you ever wonder if God desires you, look to the, to the, to the risen Jesus who, who went to the cross and took our sins upon himself, gave us all of his righteousness because he desired to be with us. We tend to look, at least as Presbyterians, we tend to look at our theology as if it were just math. Right? I've got sin, Jesus takes my sin, he cancels it out, and I'll just go out and live my life as a good person. And at the end of the day, that's not what we were created to do. We were created to live in fellowship and, and be with this one God who has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus and who has gone all the way to the bottom, who has borne all of our sin, who has done every single thing it takes to make a relationship with him possible. Now the question is, if you're not a Christian, do you have that relationship? And if you are a Christian, do you have that relationship? In other words, do you look at Jesus as the one you desire and the one you love and the one who cares about you and the one who has delivered you and the one who will always never fail you or forsake you? Or is he just sort of the operative cause and you're being saved from your sins? God wants us to desire him. 
but he shows that in his desire for us. Remember Zephaniah 3.17, one of my favorite verses? The Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior. The Lord your God rejoices over you with great shouts of joy. Remember in Luke 15, it says when, in the parable of the lost coin, in the parable of the lost sheep, it says that when, the, when one sinner is recovered, it says that there is joy in the presence of the angels. Did you know in Luke 15, it doesn't say that the angels rejoice over one sinner repenting. It says that there's joy in the presence of the angels. Who is in the presence of the angels? It's God himself rejoicing and delighting over you. Practically speaking, how do we cultivate a desire for God? Well, this, I'm going to get really practical with you. Let me ask you this question. Do you read your Bible regularly? I don't mean read your Bible just in order to be, you know, to check the box. I mean, do you, do you genuinely read the Bible expecting to sort of meet God, to believe in God? Unless you do that, you, you're, you're not going to go very far. So that's one thing. The other thing to do, very practically speaking, is take time, and this I'm going to give this to you as a challenge, take time this week to actually consider what you have. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you actually took an inventory of all of the things that you have? When's the last time you looked at your spouse and sort of just wrote out a list of all the reasons that that person is the perfect spouse for you? I told my wife after the first service she didn't need to do that. I left it by her bedside before I went this afternoon. But when's the last time you've done that? When's the last time? If, if you want to keep from coveting, remember David and Bathsheba, how that happened? As he was spending all of his time watching another woman? When is the last time you looked at your own husband or your own wife and started to really think through why they are the best person for you? When's the last time you looked at your stuff and said, you know what, I thought I needed more stuff, but actually I've got more than I, I believe. You know, I've got, a, I've, got, well, I've got several problems and issues, as many of you know. One of them is I tend to be a magnet for t-shirts. You know, like running t-shirts and any kind of t-shirts. And so it gets to a point where I can't fit them in the drawer. And probably about a year ago, I, I went through this thing and I said, I just need to throw some of these t-shirts out. And I literally could not bring myself to throw them out. Because every t-shirt, I either have some, some sentimental value is attached to it, or I think, well, you know, I'll use that to cut the grass someday, or oh, I'll use this to go to a ranger breakfast, or I'll go to this. And there's, oh, there's some reason that is attached to every single t-shirt that I got for free. And so what I did last year is I did an experiment. It's just about a year now, and I was amazed. I didn't think about it until this year. As I said, okay, Tommy, here's the thing. You don't have to throw these t-shirts out. Just put them in a plastic bag. And I put, one in, put them in a plastic bag that you suck the air out so nothing happened to them. And put it in storage. And that way, if you need them, you can get to them. And you know what's amazing? Is I forgot about those shirts until like, I started thinking about this sermon. And it's been a year. I don't even know what shirts are in that plastic bag anymore. So what I thought I actually needed, I didn't need at all. You know, we've moved three or four times in the past several years as we've, we've sort of crept closer to the church. And every time my wood shop has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And the other, yeah, a few weeks ago, Judy said, when, you, know, you haven't built anything for a while. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have any room in that shop. You know, it's a horrible shop. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And in preparation for the sermon, I thought, I wonder how much stuff I have. And you know what? I bet if I got rid of like half of the stuff I don't need, I'd have more space than I ever imagined. Are you like that? When's the last time you actually looked at the stuff that you have and realized, not only do I not need to covet my neighbor's stuff, but I've got more stuff that I can actually do things with. 
And this is a great opportunity to tie back into to what John said before. Remember the seventh commandment, we, the no stealing, actually turns out to be a, a commandment that has to do with generosity. Maybe we take some of the things that we have and we actually liquidate them and give them to people who need them. Or we, we, we liquidate them and give them to the church so mission can go further. Or we liquidate them and give them to world vision. You give them someplace that you actually become generous with these things instead of hoarding these things. And ask yourself, what do I need? You know, one of the things I, I do for you, I don't ask for a lot, but I, you, you need to know sometimes the torture. I go, I watched the movie yesterday, The Jerk. Have you seen The Jerk? Have you seen it recently? Basically, The Jerk is, is a story of this guy who's not a very bright guy who becomes, he, he constantly covets, you know, a better lifestyle and a better car and a better house and a better this, and he invents something that he becomes filthy rich overnight. But he's so, so not bright that he basically squanders his money and he ends up losing everything and his wife just wants him and he says i don't need anything i don't need any of you guys remember the scene it's toward toward the end and he said i don't need anything he's, he's leaving his house he says but there's ashtray i need this ashtray he says i don't need anything but this ashtray yells at his wife and then he's walking back and he's like and this this radio i don't need anything but this ashtray and this radio and by the time he gets to his front door his arms are just full of junk ask yourself this what things do you need and how valuable are they, given the fact that Jesus has given you everything in his person and work, and he promises that he's going to finish the job. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray this morning that you would, um, you would give us hearts of contentment, and I pray that you would make yourself known more and more, whether it's through worship or whether it's through our personal devotions or whether it's through, through relationships with our friends, that you would make yourself more and more known, and you would become more and more precious to us as a congregation. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. And amen.